So basically, these gene drives that are being developed right now, theoretically, has the potential to spread throughout the world and possibly drive the entire species extinct. Um, mathematical models suggest that that's unlikely that they would be that effective to spread, but there is a possibility of that, right? And so in a, in a time where we are driving millions of species extinct unintentionally to then drive, to develop a technology that could intentionally drive a species to extinction um, in order to save human lives becomes really, it's a really wicked question. I'm Maya LaPearl, and you're listening to Wildness. Wildness is a podcast about the experiences of animals living in the wild, and the people who are working to help make those experiences better. I'm making this podcast in conjunction with Wild Animal Initiative to work towards a better understanding of wild animal welfare. Wild Animal Initiative is a nonprofit that works to research, raise awareness, and reduce the suffering of animals. Support this podcast and other projects at wildanimalinitiative.org slash donate. My name is Natalie Kofler. Natalie is the founder of an initiative called Editing Nature. The mission of Editing Nature is to find ways to guide responsible use of genetic technologies and their application for the environment. I am a molecular biologist by training. However, I now do a lot of work in the area of equity, justice, and ethics surrounding uh, technology. For around 10 years, Natalie spent most of her days in a laboratory, first as she pursued her doctorate and then continuing her postdoctoral work in biomedical medicine. But then she sort of became disillusioned with her work. There was this sort of stage in my life when I started to realize that I was becoming more and more detached from some of these larger issues that our world is facing, in particular the environmental issues that we're trying to solve. And I went through a pretty immense two to three months of grief. I became more aware and connected with a lot of the environmental destruction that was taking place. And it was to the point where I would be driving down the highway, I would see maybe a grove of trees that had just been torn down to put up some development. And I literally would start sobbing in the car. And this lasted for several months. You know, you really grieve for things that you love. And it really established this deep um, love for, for nature. And um, that still serves as, as a motivation for trying to, to come up with solutions um, to figure out how we can work more in balance with nature. And so I had this sort of awakening moment where I started spending less time in the lab um, and a lot more time in the woods. Spending a lot of time in the woods wasn't really new for her, but she was getting back into it. I feel deep kinship with, with non-human nature. And I think a lot of that comes from the lot of time that I spent in Northern Ontario uh, at a family cottage that we have up on a lake up about three hours north of Toronto. Um, and I would spend most of my summers there um, and would really just have that time to be able to sit in the woods or sit by the creek or sit on a rock by the lake and just sort of connect in different ways with nature that, you know, some people might have the opportunity to do. And I think that was a really important um, shaping to, to how I feel in my relationship with nature. And now Natalie is sort of a nature ambassador. She says her life's work is to try and figure out ways where we as humans can kind of create more healthy and respectful uh, relationships with non-human nature. Which is why she's gotten really interested in CRISPR, a new technology that has the potential to change the lives of pretty much everyone living on this planet regardless of species. So is there a super simplified way that you could explain CRISPR and how gene drives work? Sure, <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> uh, basically, CRISPR gene editing is a newer technology that allows scientists to make very specific changes to any genetic sequence. Um, and they can do so with quite a high level of specificity 
um, as well as in a pretty inexpensive and easy to use manner. And so that's really what's sort of the game changer here is that this new technology CRISPR um, is sort of allowing for genetic engineering to become much more easily accessible and to be able to allow it to do things that might've been quite challenging in the past. Because it's so easy to use, it's been able to also create um, what are called these CRISPR-based gene drives. And so what that means is that you use CRISPR to make any change in an organism. Like a mosquito. What you can then create is a gene drive where that mosquito expresses this sterility-inducing gene. Go ahead, express yourself, little mosquito. When you release a mosquito that has a CRISPR-based gene drive into the wild, it mates with a wild mosquito. And then this is where the CRISPR gene really shines, because in the offspring produced from that mating... A CRISPR gene edits the wild gene it's inherited from its wild parents. So now the wild gene has conformed to match the CRISPR gene too, which means it's getting passed down to this new mosquito's offspring. And then those mosquitoes' offspring, and their offspring, and their offspring, and their And so in a way, it's overcoming natural selection to push your desired gene through a population. And it also does it in an incredibly fast way because you're getting 100% inheritance of whatever gene you're trying to change. So people are talking about using CRISPR gene editing and by extension uh, gene drives to impact wild species for generally three different outcomes either for a public health um, outcome, for environmental conservation, or for agriculture. And so when we think about public health, um, some of the proposals, and actually this is probably the most mature um, projects that are underway at the moment, is to genetically engineer uh, vectors of disease like Anopheles gambi, which is the species of mosquito that transmits malaria. Um, to either induce sterility in a wild population of Anopheles to suppress their numbers and reduce malaria transmission. Um, and there's also discussions of also using CRISPR-based gene drives in a way that would alter the genomes of wild Anopheles mosquito so that they would not necessarily be sterile, but they would be incapable of transmitting malaria uh, parasites. And then there's also discussions around using CRISPR-based gene drives um, for environmental conservation. And one area that's getting a lot of focus is for the elimination of invasive species. So for example, there are um, many islands, specifically in the Pacific, uh, that have invasive rodents, rats, and mice that are creating quite a lot of havoc with uh, native bird species because many of them nest on the ground. And so there's been quite a lot of discussion and energy around creating a gene drive that could, again, spread sterility through these invasive rodent populations on some of these uh, islands where the bird species are under threat. Um, there's also been discussion of using CRISPR in combination with a gene drive to provide resiliency to threatened species. So for example, there's some work starting to look at what could be potential genetic alterations um, for coral species that would allow them to withstand raising sea temperatures and ocean acidification. But again, those are sort of more nascent projects and that there's still a lot to work out around the genomes of coral. So what, what genes would you even target to change? There's also a lot of kinks around even being able to allow coral to reproduce in a lab setting, which would be required if you were gonna develop a genetically engineered uh, version. Um, you know, these are interesting things to think about because those are using genetic technologies in the wild for conservation purposes. And then thirdly, there's been some discussion about using genetic modification um, and CRISPR in particular for agricultural uh, pest suppression. Um, and you should know that there are some uh, projects already underway that predate CRISPR. And for example, there's already um, been um, a diamondback moth that has been genetically engineered to uh, create infertility or at least impair the development of its offspring when released into the wild. And that's in order to reduce the diamondback moth populations in sort of the Northeast area of the US where um, diamondback moths are a serious pests for things like um, canola. In previous phases of genetic modification, huge swaths of DNA had to be changed or taken from the genome of one species and relocated to another. It was a lot less precise. 
what CRISPR allows for is to the very base pair, literally to a single base pair, you can make, make a change. And so it creates a, a much more sophisticated way of altering a genome. Um, if you know already that there's a naturally occurring mutation in a crop, for example, um, you could edit that into a genome and not have to go through, you know, the many generations of crossbreeding to be able to get that trait within your target crop. So that, that's sort of where the difference is there. But at the end of the day, if you think about the amount of money, time, and effort that has been put into trying to understand just the human body, right, our own species, and how little still we know, when you start extending that to another organism like a mosquito, and then extending that beyond to the ecosystems to which they are a part of, there are a lot of black holes. And so I think with that, there comes high degrees of uncertainty of what could happen. And we have to, if we're going to be making those choices, we have to be comfortable with that. Technologies like CRISPR have the potential to drastically change the world we're familiar with. Sometimes it feels like it could happen overnight. CRISPR is cheap and easy to use, so if you don't trust pretty much every other human being on this planet to use that technology wisely, it could be a little concerning. And there are lots of great ideas about how to use CRISPR to change the world for the better, but we don't all necessarily agree on what they are. I think you know where I'm going with this. So of course, like the very, the very sensationalized example is the woolly mammoth, where with CRISPR gene editing, it's been proposed that the genome of an elephant could be edited to express all of the genetic attributes of a woolly mammoth because they're relatively similar, but you'd have to just make all these edits so that it then basically reconstructs the woolly mammoth DNA, which we know because they've been preserved in, in ice in the north. Um, and then basically implant a woolly mammoth embryo into an elephant surrogate to birth this woolly mammoth. And then put the woolly mammoth into like the Russian steppes or, or some tundra area um, into an environment that is quite changed from when they were once walking on our, on our planet. Um, and so again, I think there is a real call for caution against hubris. And when we think about bringing these species back to life, sort of what are the motivations for that? Um, is it a sci-fi dream some scientist had when he was a boy that he's trying to enact into reality? Or is it a uh, motivation to try and restore what, what humans have damaged? And I, I, think, I think that's an important question that we need to be asking. Um, and of course, what people bring, bring up as concerns is, again, how about you know, not focusing so much on bringing things back from extinction, but focusing on preventing the extinction of the species that are, all, are under threat um, at this time. De-extinction is a really tricky topic. It can fall under ethical arguments of uh, restorative justice in that if it's a species that's gone extinct due to humans, that we may have a moral responsibility to, to bring it back if we could. It's interesting, too, to think about, you know, you're taking an elephant's DNA and changing it until it's, you know, a woolly mammoth you know, by comparison. And so, I don't know, I, I guess if it's supposed to be like bringing back some sort of ancestral line, then of course, it doesn't seem to really fit that. Right. So now they kind of they're they've they've toned it back where they refer to them as woolly mammoth proxies, understanding that they could never fully be a woolly mammoth. And in fact, they've toned it back even further, because so there's also these environmental um, sort of climate change arguments um, because there's some studies, and again, I'm, I'm unsure to know if these have been fully validated, but there are some studies that are demonstrating that loss of those really large herbivores in tundra spaces is having impacts on the global climate. So their idea is to bring back these large uh, herbivores to those areas to help protect um, sort of Arctic melt and help protect from raising climate temperatures. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so now the discussion is to make just really furry elephants <laughs> <laughs> so, so that they 
could like survive the cold temperatures up there. But like, is that okay? I don't know. Like that seems a little unfair to me to, when we're talking about individual suffering and you're going to try and think you can create, you know, an Asian elephant that has fur and somehow it's going to enjoy its life. So, yeah. So, yeah, it's all very reminiscent of Jurassic Park or I guess maybe Jurassic World because we're talking about releasing gene drives into the wild where we'll quickly lose our precise level of control over them. So this is very different than when we talk about, say, GMOs and agriculture, where safety was centered around containment and trying to ensure that genetically modified crops didn't sort of interfere with, quote unquote, the wild organisms. Um, here, in these sorts of proposals, it's, it's intended to release into uncontained environments and to spread through wild populations of species. Um, and then, of course, when you think about a gene drive in particular, where they are designed to spread and potentially indefinitely in nature, there's also geopolitical considerations that people are concerned about, right? Because these organisms aren't necessarily going to um, respect state, state borders. And so what happens if you have one country that approves release and the neighboring country doesn't want them within their boundaries? And so... There are a lot of governance sort of challenges that are coming along with, with this, making these decisions. So why would we ever want to release a new technology out into the wild without knowing for sure that we can control it or at least rein it in later? There's no either or here. And so and malaria kills nearly half a million people every year, most of whom are children. And so one argument that is put forward is that, you know, is it, is it actually ethically wrong to hold back on a technology that could you know, reduce human suffering to, to such a degree? Um, other arguments that are put forward that I think have some validity to them as well is that this could provide a means to sort of more targetedly impact uh, wild species populations as compared to something like an insecticide or things that have broad impact on a variety of species. What happens now, for example, even with these invasive rodents in Pacific Islands where Huge amounts of rodenticide are literally generalized and put around the entire island. We know in the past that there's been unintended impacts on certain, you know, raptor predator birds as well as amphibians and reptiles. And so there are argues that using a gene drive in a rodent would, would kind of reduce those unintended consequences. And so um, it's very important that I stay in that gray zone. And I think what allows me to do that is it is a direct reflection of how I feel. So when I first, you know, heard about these technologies, it literally was in the same breath. Wow, that's so exciting. This could provide an entirely new way to address some of these serious issues that our world is facing. And holy crap, if that isn't done well, this could be so destructive and dangerous. And, and I hold those conflicting ideas and feelings in me at all times, you know? And so I think that is what allows me um, to really passionately protect that middle zone, that gray area. Um, and it also, you know, I think what's a challenge is you so quickly see these conversations sort of degrade to these us versus them and either or mentalities. And um, to me, that's, that's actually probably one of the scariest things that can happen because it doesn't allow us to enter into a space of decision-making that allows for reflection. Um, it doesn't allow us to be transformed by the perspective of others um, or to reflect on their perspective of others and feel how they either are in conflict or agree with our own perspectives. And I think if we don't allow for space like that, um, I'm concerned that firstly, we won't be able to address all of the blind spots of uncertainties that these technologies carry. And I also worry that we won't be able to make choices that are holistic in the way that we think about things. So for example, I refuse to fall into this either or decision-making around using CRISPR-based gene drives uh, to counter malarial transmission. Um, in that if you're pro-gene drive, um, then you're somehow anti-environment, you don't care about the environment. And if you're against these gene drives, it means you're some sort of, um, you know, total jerk that doesn't think that, you know, these children, most of whom are in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, don't deserve to, to live. Um, I love humanity and I also love the environment. And in fact, if we don't think about tailoring these technologies that allow for the flourishing of both humans and non-human nature, 
um, then I don't think we'll be able to, to use these technologies wisely. And so again, that's not an either or, that's, that's actually a, a both and holding both as important. So editing nature is sort of Natalie's way of broadening this gray zone, because there are a lot more than two ways of looking at this. I love technology, but I'm not, I'm not into um, unilateral decision-making around how technologies are used. I think what's really lacking at this point and something I'm trying to work on is providing ethical frameworks for decision-making that allows for deep respect and care for our planet but can also appreciate that technology can be part of that relationship. And it's really a question of how we use technologies, not the technologies themselves. Right. So you are proposing some guidelines that could be used kind of globally to govern the way we use CRISPR in the wild, right? Yeah. So can you explain a little bit about the philosophy behind these guidelines and especially in relation to the voices that, you know, you would be proposing to amplify in the discussion? Yeah, and I think really what our proposal sort of is motivated by is the question of who, right? Who gets to make these choices about how these technologies are developed and how they're deployed? And um, what I felt really strongly about was both for practical reasons and for motivations of justice that we need to have diverse worldviews and diverse voices steering how these technologies are governed and how they proceed. And so what we propose is really a bottom-up approach to, to the governance of decision-making around whether or not a genetically engineered organism should be released into the wild. Um, but with that, we mean really shifting the power balance to move away from sort of top-down governance approaches where regulatory bodies sort of hold the ultimate um, decision-making power and giving power to local communities who would be directly impacted by either the risks or benefits of such a release. A pretty radical way of governing anything. So that was important to us for several reasons. One, it allows for really context-dependent decision-making because as you can imagine, genetically engineering a coral to withstand raising sea temperatures on the Grace Barrier Reef is going to encompass very different kinds of questions and value systems and inputs than, say, a gene drive in a mosquito being released to, to suppress malaria transmission in Burkina Faso in Western Africa. Along with local communities, Natalie also proposes that experts from a wide range of disciplines be consulted throughout these decision-making processes because as you can imagine, these are super complex issues. They require the input to be ecologists, of geneticists, of, of economists, of politicians, of um, people looking at ethics and value systems and philosophers. And so it's really important to have a, a really broad range of expertise in order to reduce expert blind spots. But again, not allowing these decisions to be restricted to experts and including local populations and local community members that can bring in their unique worldviews and um, relationships with the environments that might be changed or with the humans that would be impacted by such changes. She sees this as an issue of justice. Before we release these animals or plants or other organisms into the wild, we need to consider that these are shared environments they're being released into. And not only that, but they'll likely spread. And so it becomes really challenging because if you only allow, say, a village in Burkina Faso to decide on whether they should be released or not, but these mosquitoes could have the potential to spread throughout the African Union or even beyond the borders of the continent. Um, how do we engage sort of global perspectives and interests in these decision-making processes when we're talking about these sort of um, technologies that could have, um, have the potential to spread quite far? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to me, too, because at this point in time, so many things can spread globally, whether, you know, whether it's through the Internet or anyway. So it's it just seems like these are really important conversations to be having for that reason. Yeah, and it becomes really complicated, right, because particularly now we're witnessing new technologies like the Internet, like genetic engineering of the wild, like geoengineering, for example, and engineering of our climates that have the potential to impact literally the entire globe, right? Mm -hmm. um, but as you can imagine, when you have more people at the decision-making table, it becomes very challenging to reach a consensus. Uh -huh. And so 
um, we don't have all the answers, but we do know that if a top-down approach uh, restricted at the state level, um, we fear would be inadequate. Right. It sounds like another kind of place where you have to inhabit that gray area, kind of in mm-hmm. between expedience and in between um, equity, I guess. Yeah, it's the it's the in between is exactly what it is, and um, it can be a very I think many of us and me included can feel quite uncomfortable in that space. Um, but there's a I feel responsibility to stay in that space, and I'm starting to learn that there's immense power to make change when you're when you stay in that space. Um, and that I, I sometimes actually even relate that to when we look at at nature. So some of the most rich uh, rich spaces and biodiversity are those in-between areas, right? Like right along the edge of a lake between water and land or right along the side of a pasture between forest and a, and a meadow. Um, and so I think there's a lot, there's a lot of potential to make change and to grow um, when we can stay in that in-between space. Do you have thoughts on how we might be able to use this technology to improve the lives of animals in the wild? Yeah, so coral's one example that's getting quite a lot of attention. Um, in part, just because we're in an, we're in a crisis right now, right? We're losing coral at exceptionally fast rates, and there's a lot of fear that it will be so challenging to actually try and reverse the changes that are occurring to the temperatures and acidity of our oceans. And so, it might be the only way to preserve some of these species. And they're thinking about the use of these technologies to reduce animal suffering or using that as an argument. Um, So for example, the screw worm in the US was a major pest for for cattle because they base, it's just, it's really disgusting, but they basically chew into the horns of cattle and create a huge amount of pain. Um, But what people don't realize is they also impact deer, for example, because they're also kind of eating away around their antlers and creating these open wounds. So then the question becomes, if we have the technology to forever eliminate screw worms and the suffering they cause in deer and cows, should we do that? And again, there are complicated discussions because, you know, at the end of the day, are, are we saving coral for the intrinsic value of coral because coral deserves to continue and live on this planet? Or are we saving coral for our own needs because we feel guilty that we've created situations that are causing them to decline or because we enjoy their presence because they have a really high economic value by supporting fisheries? And, and so it gets kind of, it gets a little harried when we start thinking about that. So I think it's used as a crux to be able to continue sort of these large systemic um, grievances against non-human species in the wild, then that becomes dangerous, right? Right. I mean, especially if you think of the screw worm example, there's so many, many species that cause suffering to other species in the wild. I know. And so it sounds like that one might be somewhat based on our own interests as well because of the cattle. Exactly. And I think that that's when, again, this question of of who becomes so important. Because a community that is directly impacted by malaria that has children, you know, mothers who have lost their children to this disease are going to feel very differently about trying to use a technology that could solve this disease burden versus, say, a environmentalist based in, you know, Chicago. Right. And so it's just so challenging to find um, sort of a way to move forward that can ensure that we reduce human suffering, but at the same time, uphold the health of the non-human species that we share the planet with. Um, I think if we can develop guidelines that ensure certain virtues in the decision makers, so virtues like respect for the non-human world, that are looking to ensure sort of a healthy planetary future, that by sort of having those virtues guide decision-making, we may be able to think about ways that can ensure that non-human beings don't suffer in how we use these technologies. Natalie talks a lot about the question of who. Trying to include everyone's voice in a collaborative decision is hard enough with four of your coworkers. 
So the idea of getting the input and consensus necessary to make decisions that affect everyone that we know or suspect exists is kind of monstrous. It's really a gigantic thing to consider. Luckily, Natalie has thought about this a lot. And so legal personhood provides some example of how uh, a non-human species or an ecosystem could be given some level of voice um, in these sorts of decisions. But of course, this becomes very complicated um, when we think about, let's use the mosquito as an example, which is generally a pretty uncharismatic species in the eyes of humans. I, I don't know if it'd be possible to give legal personhood to, to the mosquito, but I do think if we can at least broaden sort of the, the perspective of decision makers to at least include mosquitoes as something that should be considered, it changes the tone of the entire deliberative space when we can expand beyond the human. So I do believe there could be parts of legal personhood that could be drawn on to sort of provide tools, again, to, to see non-human nature as something that should have some level of um, agency in, in how these decisions are made. Can you describe what it means to have legal personhood? No, and nobody can. <laughs> this is Jay Schuster. I mean, that's not quite right, but I, just being cheeky to, to say that there's tons of disagreement and discussion about what this means and it's even, you know, a coherent concept. Uh, but I can throw out some helpful definitions and ways of thinking about it. I know um, the Non-Human Rights Project thinks of legal personhood as meaning um, the capacity to bear rights. And so if you have, if you are an entity that has the capacity to bear rights, then you have legal personhood. If you're a legal person, then by definition, that means that, you know, the legal system exists for your benefit versus a legal thing which is um, basically only instrumentally useful to the legal system to the extent that legal things can be owned or, or used by legal persons. And yeah, I think seeing that dichotomy between legal things and legal persons is an effective way of, of generally thinking about this issue. But then finally, another way of thinking about it is just to give a few random examples. Corporations can be persons, ships can be persons, human beings can be persons. And all of these things, just in general, the legal system will assign particular rights or duties to those units. Jay is a lawyer who lives in Brooklyn in a brownstone with several roommates. I live in a micro-sanctuary. My partner is an animal rescuer, and uh, we've rescued several animals. She does almost all of the, the caregiving herself, but we have dogs and quails and chickens and rats and fishes. And for the most part, we all live in harmony together. Jay rescued one of the animals himself from the sidewalk in New York City, a little rat who he named Squid. He says he's always liked animals, but he hasn't always been interested in animal advocacy. I, I always tell people, like, I am an animal lover and an animal rights activist because of the philosophy. It's not the other way around. For most of his life, if you told him he would end up dedicating his career to animal rights. I would have told you, like, man, that's a real disappointment because I wanted to do something that really matters and that's really important. Um, and because I really didn't think that this was, you know, a first-rate moral issue. In fact, I think I had some sexist associations of seeing this as basically a kind of feminine, sentimental issue that wasn't, you know, a serious moral problem. And so it was only through reading Peter Singer, actually, that started me down the path of asking certain questions about, you know, who does have moral significance. Frankly, I started with reading The Life You Can Save and, and realizing that, yeah, there really is no moral difference between human beings living in the United States and wealthy countries and human beings living on the other side of the world. And yeah, it was that kind of line of thinking, starting to ask the question, what are morally significant characteristics? that ultimately led to realizing that, yeah, species itself is not a morally significant characteristic or has no independent moral significance. Currently, Jay is working on what he calls factory farming false advertising litigation. Which means that we focus on suing factory farms, big industrial animal agriculture businesses that make claims that their products are humane or sustainable or natural 
or other sorts of similar claims. And because that is very often, sometimes always not the case, uh, we yeah, hold them accountable through state false advertising laws. Unlike animal rights, Jay didn't need any kind of awakening to know he wanted to be a lawyer. I've been interested in practicing law um, since as, lo- as long as I can remember. My dad's a lawyer, and I grew up in a family where, a Jewish family, where it was almost foreordained uh, that I was going to become a lawyer. Um, there's a, a joke about, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, in my family, just about, and, and a lot of Jewish families. In some religions, uh, life begins at conception, but in the Jewish religion, uh, life begins when the fetus graduates from medical school or law school. And so, um, yeah, law school in in my case. But yeah, so it was kind of foreordained that I was going to be a lawyer when I was a little kid. Everyone would always say, you know, oh, you'll be such a good lawyer one day. Um, So it was already kind of in my my mind. But then I actually started working with my dad on his legal work, and I realized it was actually... Um, quite boring in a lot of ways. There's a lot of paperwork and you don't just get to stand up in court and speak truth to power and say beautiful words of justice. Um, There's a lot of procedural stuff involved and a lot of details that I I find uh, find not too exciting. And so I ultimately was skeptical of becoming a lawyer, but then um, what really pushed me over the edge and and made me decide to want to become an animal rights lawyer is when Stephen Wise of the Non-Human Rights Project was being interviewed on the AR Zone podcast. And then I realized, you know, there's a a wide range of different types of things you could do as a lawyer. And there are ways to really push the ball forward and engage in an exciting and and meaningful way across a variety of dimensions. Yeah, that's awesome. I just watched the documentary that just came out, Unlocking the Cage, about Stephen Wise and some of the stuff he's been working on. Yeah. It was. It came out really. So if good. you look closely, yeah, my my head is in there somewhere. Nice, you, can, you made I'm it. Flo- floating around <laughs> in the background. Yeah. So actually, the the star of the show. <laughs> but yeah, I I think I went with them. You know, I, I followed them around for a while. I worked on their social media team and generally as like an advisor for for many years, and ran a philosophy working group for them. Uh, at some point a while ago before they found some real experienced philosophers to take that over for me. That sounds like a, it would be a really fun project to do in that organization. Yeah, it was really cool. It was very cool getting to kind of lay out the philosophical underpinnings of our arguments and uh, marshal these different resources in support of our arguments and also explain why the you know main arguments against us, how they've been disputed and I think, largely discredited in the uh, philosophy world over the years. I asked Jay about why he thought personhood was the best avenue for advocating for animals' rights. His answer kind of highlighted the contrast between philosophical and legal reasoning. I'm not sure how much legal personhood makes sense as a construct as a general matter, so I'm a little bit reluctant to weigh in on whether it's the best way to conceptualize them. The way that I typically think about this is just that in a system where that's what we have, and that is sort of a necessary criteria that you need to meet in order to have rights, I think, yes, in this system where we have legal personhood, it is essential that animals also are recognized as legal persons. Because in the absence of that, in our society, if you don't have legal personhood, then you don't have legal rights. Now, some scholars say that you can have legal rights without having legal personhood. Um, and that there's, they're just different things. And I think for me, I think it's more important to recognize that I, I don't really care how you get there. I just think the ultimate aim needs to be, we need to make it very clear in our legal institutions that animals matter in and of themselves, not just instrumentally for how they affect other entities, namely human beings. And one way of doing that is recognizing them as legal persons. But frankly, I think a lot of this may just be semantic. And if, as long as the legal system is willing to say they have legal rights and they matter in and of themselves, well, that's what, that's what really matters. However, there's definitely some disagreement on this. For instance, Jay says Stephen Wise would often say things like, Personhood is appropriate for, again, the beings whose interests matter in and of themselves to the legal system, not just instrumentally. So, you know, it might be illegal to break someone's car window but that doesn't mean that the car window has rights. 
It's more like the person who owns the car has a right not to have their stuff broken. But non-human and even non-living entities can be considered legal persons, like corporations and ships. Though in those particular cases, the reason for those entities being considered persons is it's actually just that it's instrumentally useful for the legal system to have this single legal entity represent the interests of a broad number of, I guess in those cases, owners of the corporation or owners of the, uh, of the ship. So if legal personhood in the case of those non-human entities is designed around the concept of owners, it seems like it would have to look a lot different when we apply the same concept to wild animals. The most concrete example could be, for example, a saying that dolphins, to pick a random animal, have the right not to be killed by human beings. So it would be just saying, yeah, they have a right not to be shot or caught and used by humans. And if they have that legal right not to be killed, then human beings would have a corollary legal duty not to kill them. And so in the same way that if you kill a human being, you would be held legally accountable for doing so and that the state would actually act proactively even to stop you from doing that, um, you would have a similar arrangement. We, some scholars would even say, we already have this for certain animals, like for certain endangered animals. If the law actually says that human beings have a legal duty, for example, not to kill endangered species of dolphins, then those dolphins actually already have a legal right uh, not to be killed. Now, other folks like Stephen Wise um, would say that's not really the right way to think about rights. But again, I, to me, I think he's right to the extent that it's not very clear under the Endangered Species Act that the reason why we're protecting them is because those individual animals' lives matter in and of themselves. You could say that perhaps they're just protected by the law, which generally is only doing this because human beings want to have all these different animals out there in the wild. And it's not actually for the interest of the dolphins themselves. So that's the crucial distinction. But regardless, having a right, a firm right to protect them uh, from humans killing them would, you know, to simply put, you know, help stop human beings from killing them. To decide that human beings killing other animals would be illegal is definitely controversial. But it's not a particularly complicated idea to wrap your head around. You know, as technology improves, and makes it easier for us to avoid direct conflict with the interests and rights of animals. So, for example, the proliferation of plant-based and clean meat, you know, as that makes it easier for us to just say, yeah, we're not going to raise animals for our benefit, I think that will help further pave the way for us to be open to these bigger questions or broader questions about the rights and interests of animals when we don't find ourselves committed to having to, you know, justify basically eating their bodies three times a day. But Jay would also propose granting wild animals positive legal rights as well. So people typically distinguish between negative rights and positive rights, meaning that uh, negative rights are certain rights to be free from harm. So you have the right to be free from having your speech infringed by the government under the First Amendment, that would be a negative right. You may have um, a freedom from being killed by the government or by other people, uh, and that would be a kind of negative right. And you may have the right to property, not to have your property taken away from you. Uh, that would be a negative right. A positive right is a right to something. So the right to have health care provided for you or the right to have education provided to you by the government or right to have food or water or shelter. Those are the ways that we commonly separate between those different kinds of rights. And that's when giving wild animals rights starts to feel really tricky. How would that even be possible? You know, at first blush, it may seem completely implausible, right, that we could provide medical care to countless animals. I don't even know what, what the number is not trillions, it's not quadrillions, it's some gigantic number, right, that's, um, that we can't even comprehend. It does seem pretty difficult to think about how we could actually provide health care 
and food and water and shelter and protection to, to all these different animals. So the way that I think it's important to conceptualize it is that these are kind of, these are aspirations. They're aspirational rights. And this is not something that would be unique to wild animals. We already have aspirational rights being recognized in the context of these positive rights for human beings under international law. So words like aspirational rights are specifically used in international treaties, in particular the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, which is ratified, by the way, by almost every country on earth, and was recently, it was recently proposed by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to adopt it in the United States as well, because right now the U.S. is one of the, the lone holdouts. That, that covenant recognizes rights to food, water, housing, and then the language was the, the highest attainable standard of health which implicitly like recognizes that there is going to be a kind of spectrum of what is attainable, but that the, the goal is for governments, wherever they are, to use the resources that they have available to them to, to reach the, yeah, the highest standard that, that they can. Already right now, you know, someone that's in um, sub-Saharan Africa in a, a nation that's in extreme poverty, that government already has a legal obligation to provide education and health care and food and water and shelter. And everyone recognizes that they're not meeting that. And they might um, be violating those rights currently, but there's an understanding that at a minimum, these governments have an obligation to work towards achieving these rights, you know, as quickly as possible. And, and so we can think by a similar framework to how we think about the rights of animals in the wild. Even though we can't provide all of these different things for them today, we have an obligation to be working towards this as quickly as possible. Yeah, okay. So can you talk about, you know, how some animals' rights might conflict with each other and then what we could do in those circumstances? So um, in the same way that, you know, in the human context, for example, you know, everyone has the right to life um, and the right to health, but... Everyone also may have the right to start a factory or, or the right to drive that poses some threats to other people's health, right? Your right to drive a car um, does have an impact on everyone around you's right to not be hit by a car, just because we understand that um, no matter how careful you are, when you're driving around a machine that weighs several thousand pounds, uh, it just poses an inherent danger to others. And so we have government institutions in place and legal concepts that allow us to kind of balance these rights against each other and find a way to, to work these different rights out. The more helpful way to, to think about the positive rights of wild animals is not so much to think about what do I, Jay, have an obligation to provide to wild animals, um, because in the context of positive rights, in the human context, we often, you know, I don't have any obligation personally to provide health care for people who are sick or any personal obligation to provide food to somebody who's hungry, not legally at least, the obligation is on the government to create a system that can provide these things for animals. And, you know, yes, it's much easier said than done, but I would just say, you know, that's the same problem that we're faced with in the human context. Um, where, you know, China's right to economic growth and to provide the highest standard of living for the people who live there may conflict with the rights of people who live on an island in the Pacific who are going to be threatened by the effects of climate change if China does not take actions to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. The, the real mission in the short term is just to conduct the research at a small scale and, and recognize that this is a a decade or, you know, a centuries-long uh, ambitious project to try to find out and, and think hard about how we can maximize overall welfare. But I wonder how far we can really go with this idea. If I can't even see the tiny insects I step on when I walk around outside, how could I make sure their legal rights are being respected? How many of the animals on this planet could we grant legal rights to? I think all sentient beings should fall into that category. I think they have morally significant experiences, and the law should be concerned with making sure that all beings that have these morally significant experiences become part of the broad calculus that the law is using to determine what the just and correct course of action is. We have to take all those interests into account.
That being said, I think the specific rights that individuals have may vary. So a good example is a blind person does not have a right to drive. They just don't. They would, it would, it would, it's illegal to drive if you can't see. We may also accept that bears and walruses don't have the right to drive either, or they don't have the right to, you know, a K through 12 education. The rights that individuals have are necessarily dependent on their particular capacities and needs and interests. And, and so, yeah, they should vary based on those. And I want to clarify also that the rights that animals have may be different and greater than the rights that human beings have. So, you know, a, a dolphin, for example, may need to have a right to an environment that's free from certain, you know, high-pitched sounds that we can't hear, but that would infringe really significantly on, on their rights. And so it really does vary significantly, and it's not just that human beings have more rights than these other animals. So do you think that there are ways to take other animals' interests into account without making assumptions, you know, about what their lives are like or what's best for them? No. Uh, The problem is that we have no choice. Um, And we do that with each other and, again, with humans all the time. I mean, we... With humans, it's easier, right? At least with most human beings, um, they can tell us in words what they want and don't want. But even there, as everyone who's who's had a disagreement with somebody else before knows, it's not obvious always what exactly that is. But the, the, the problem is we have no choice other than to do our best to try to determine what's in others' best interests. And so it's going to be especially imperfect with non-human animals uh, because they can't tell us in words what, what they want, um, or at least not in words that we understand. But yeah, we, we have an obligation to do, do our best. And I, and I just reject the idea that because we can't know with an extreme high degree of certainty that we shouldn't even try or that we just can throw up our hands and say, let's just leave them alone entirely, which I think is a reaction a lot of people have. Because I think that itself is assuming that that is what's in their best interest and that is what they would really want. Yeah. So I have to say, um, you know, one of my really motivating forces when I think about these things is, is how to give voice and how to give voice to those that have been historically marginalized in technology decision making. So um, just, you know, off the tip of my head, I can talk about women, for example, who haven't largely been brought into these sorts of decision making processes, non-experts, um, people from historically marginalized ethnic communities. But then I also think about those that don't have voice and how can we give voice to the voiceless? And the two groups that come to mind front and foremost when I think about that are non-human you know, beings um, as well as future generations. And so when we're thinking about sort of the process of really how to have meaningful deliberation on how these technologies should proceed, I am adamant of including, somehow including the voice of non human nature in those discussions. Ultimately, I think, you know, we want the government to play a key role here. And I think it's incumbent on all of us to try to, you know, give thought to this. But I think because of the complexities involved, we need specialists to work in this field and to, you know, to work on animal behavior and um, ecology and animal welfare to study these topics. And, And we will have to, at some level, defer to experts who can provide us with, you know, an, a more accurate understanding of these animals. And so to, to try and understand how that could be managed in these sort of spaces, I have drawn a lot on the writings around legal rights for nature um, and looking at when, for example, the Wanganui River in New Zealand was, was deemed legal personhood. It was given basically a group of humans that would serve as its custodian and make decisions that are in the interest of of the river um, and be able to move through legal proceedings um, in the interest of the river. And so calling on that, um, some of the things that I'm toying with is, for example, could we bring in human custodians that could speak for the mosquito or speak for the ecosystems in question? And not to be naive in knowing that, you know, at the end of the day, even amongst human, there's going to be huge power imbalances uh, in these deliberative events but through proper facilitation and by just even having a seat at the table 
to get it dedicated to the mosquito, I think it has the power to sort of at least transform the perspective of some of the decision makers. Um, again, moving them beyond just a human-centric way of thinking to try and think about our planet as, you know, this beautiful web of kinship with both human and non-human and how we can bring sort of respect for the non-human and compassion and sort of broaden our consideration. What I kind of ultimately envision is, you know, a division of animal welfare at all levels of government that's job is to be a voice for animals and making sure that their rights and interests are taken into account in all aspects of our decision making. Giving voice to animals in our legal systems and regulatory bodies is a really foreign idea to many, and it comes with a lot of new challenges. Often we rely on very straightforward pathways for laws to evolve, and it can be a struggle for new interests to be recognized, even when they're the interests of human beings. So making space to introduce the voices of those who don't have human voices comes with a lot of uncertainty. And when we are faced with such uncertainty, all of us, every human, calls upon our value systems to sort of fulfill those black holes, right? Um, And so values like how we value technology, how we relate to nature, um, even our levels of risk tolerance. So for example, we know through sociology studies that men tend to have higher risk tolerance than women. White men tend to have higher risk tolerance than men of color. People that are in sort of more egalitarian senses of of politics tend to have lower risk tolerance than hierarchical politics. And so it's really about how do we ensure that those value systems and the diversity of those value systems are represented in how these decisions are made and inform these decisions. So what excites you the most about the possibilities of CRISPR and gene drives and editing nature? To be fully honest, I think what excites me the most is that the challenges that these technologies pose create this amazing opportunity for us to reflect on the systems in place right now that we use to make decisions about technology in our futures and to create entirely new ways to change those systems that are more inclusive, that are more compassionate, um, that are more wise in how we're going to steer technologies. And, and to me, that's, that's the crux of it. That's the biggest excitement is the opportunity it creates to change the systems we have in place. My work on factory farming involves working very closely with other organizations that are not primarily focused on animal rights, or maybe they have a view that is more focused on animal welfare, more focused on the environment, public health, racial justice, immigrants' rights, labor rights, whatever that may be, being able to collaborate with them and and help them see their work as part of a broader coalition that includes animal rights and basically see their work and my work as an animal advocate as being kind of on par with each other and part of this broader fight and that they're both morally significant issues and that we can all work together and embrace and, and support each other's goals. To me, it provides this opportunity to really expand on, on, again, the question of who. How do we get to bring more people into these sorts of decisions? How do we get to bring more worldviews and thought processes into how we create our future? And to me, that's the most exciting part of this. How do we bring more worldviews and thought processes into making these decisions about the future of our world? How do we form broader coalitions of people advocating for different interests and embracing and supporting each other's goals? Technology has already been changing the entire Earth without the input of everyone living here. And while there will probably never be a decision that includes the feedback of every being on Earth, I'm not sure this is even an aspiration for many decision makers. In any case, it would take a lot of work to be able to say that globally we are attempting to reach the highest attainable standard of collaboration. But how much collaboration is really necessary, and who gets to decide? So I guess your thought homework this time is to consider who should get to decide how we change a planet that every known being lives on? (laughs) 
A huge thank you to the amazing guests of this episode, Natalie Kofler and Jay Schuster. If you liked this episode, be sure to share it with your friends and anyone who might be interested in learning more about wild animal welfare. You can find more information about this episode and our guests at wildanimalinitiative.org wildness.